Hey, you're about to hear a great word from our teaching team. At Freedom House, we're about equipping you to experience Christ's freedom every day. We would love to connect with you. We stream our live services Sundays at 10.30 and 12.15 Eastern Standard Time. You can join us at freedomhouse.cc live. I hope you enjoyed this message. For those who are looking at me a little bit strange right now, uh, my name is Dan Leanne, and uh, uh, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, and that's the reason my voice is this way. Uh, but my mother and father are Malaysian Chinese, that's the reason my face is this way. <laughs> Uh, but now I live in Anderson, South Carolina. That's the reason I have type 2 diabetes. And it's true, I'm a gospel ninja. Uh, I have spent the last 20 years traveling around this blue rock that God made, uh, talking about Jesus. Literally on my business card until uh, about two years ago, it read gospel ninja. And uh, I've seen some cool things around the world. My eyes are small, but they're surprisingly strong. And I have, you shouldn't have laughed, it's kind of racist. Um, <laughs> I've seen a lot of cool stuff, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of stuff quite like what God is doing here at Freedom House. And so it is so cool knowing that God is uh, pouring out His blessing and pouring out His, his love and His power and His mercy um, here at our central campus, uh, down the South End campus, uh, Lake Norman. And if you're kind of joining in online from around the world, uh, I believe that God is using this live stream to pour out His love and His power and His confidence and His peace into your life. So wherever you are, if you're from England, hello. Uh, if you're one of my Chinese brothers, what, hey, meow, I kind of, <laughs> Australians, g'day, you know, I like kind of, for the rest of you, what's up? Like kind of, so it is so cool to be able to uh, bring greetings from South Carolina uh, to you here at Freedom House and all around the world. I uh, just want to acknowledge uh, pastors Troy and Penny. This is not just the obligatory honor your senior pastor kind of moment uh, that you know usually happens at the beginning of every bit of guest ministry. I mean this with all of my heart. Um, I have not uh, interacted with them for very long, but it is evident uh, that they are very easy to love. And the reason they're easy to love is because they love easily. And uh, they love you so much. Over the last 24 hours hanging out, uh, the amount of times I've heard the reference to, I want to pastor people. I want to smell like sheep. I want to be about what God is doing in the lives of our church. Uh, I've lost count uh, on how many times I've heard that reference. So um, you got to know that not only are they gifted, not only are they talented, not, are they, not only are they aesthetically pleasing, beautiful people who dress well, um, they are people with a heart like God's heart for His people. And because of that, we should honor our leaders. So how about we just put our hands together and just thank Pastors Troy and Penny for being great examples and, and lovers of people. Also love the young Reverend Dr. Bishop Kobe and uh, excited to be with uh, his vertical community tonight. So if, you are a, uh, if you're a young person, come along. If you miss being a young person, uh, maybe go find, you know, some baggy jeans and like wear them down around here and pull your underwear up around there and basically sneak your way in. If you have a teenager at home who doesn't usually come along to church, okay, and they do wear their jeans down around here and their underwear up around here and they're on like Fortnite all the time, uh, grab a pillowcase, throw it over his head, throw them in the trunk of your car and bring him to church tonight because that kid needs Jesus, all right? And so we're going to rock out um, this evening, 6.30. 
uh, vertical youth. We're going to have fun tonight. But right here, right now, uh, we're going to engage in a really simple message. Uh, I got told that if I can keep the time in this service, I'm going to be taken out for a free lunch. And you've got to understand, uh, you know, Asian brothers love themselves a free lunch. And so <laughs> I am sticking to time uh, this afternoon. Uh, in our few sacred minutes we're going to share together, I just simply want to talk about what it means to cultivate an environment for the miraculous. Cultivating an environment for the miraculous. I love how you all have been in a series called Crossing Jordan about embracing and living in the promised land that God came so far to give you. You understand that Jesus didn't live a perfect life and die an unjust death fight Satan and fight hell to overcome sin, overcome death, just so that you can live an ordinary life. He came all the way to provide for you a life that was marked by blessing, marked by favor, marked by fruitfulness. He wants you to cross Jordan into your promised land. And the great God of this universe is not only a promise maker, he's a grand promise keeper, and he wants to bring you into every good thing that he wants you to taste with your own lips. But here's the question that I want to ask you. What are you going to do with that land? Yes. Are you just going to take pictures of that land, observe that land, leave that land untouched? Are you going to build a little house in that land and basically hide yourself in that house? Or will you cultivate an environment with that land where the mighty and the marvelous and the miraculous literally break out? Cultivating an environment for the miraculous where we see God's power at work in our lives where we see God's grace flow in our lives and through our lives, where our lives knit together with the lives of the people around us creates an environment where the lost are found and the hurting are healed and the broken are mended and those who are far away from God are brought lovingly close to God, where dreams are restored, where marriages are revived. Could we create an environment that literally cultivates the miraculous? So this morning, for a few minutes, we're going to talk about cultivating an environment for the miraculous. If you're taking down notes this morning, the sermon title is Give Me Five. I want you to write that down in your notes. I'm not saying you have to take notes to get into heaven. I'm just saying, why take a chance? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> See, if you have an iPhone or an iPod or an iPad, pull that out right now. Kiss it and thank the Lord Jesus for Steve Jobs as you open up that note app and scribble at the top there. Give me five cultivating an environment for the miraculous. If you have like an Android device or a Samsung device or like a Blackberry, you can put it away. I've got nothing for you from this point on in the meeting. <laughs> Give me five dash cultivating an environment for the miraculous. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Father God, we exalt you. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Have your way. Open up our eyes to see, our hearts to perceive, our hands to get what you want to pour out this morning. Not only, don't only talk about change, but bring life change. And as we partner with you, help us cultivate an environment with our lives where we get to see with our own eyes the mighty, the marvelous, and the miraculous, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Cultivating an environment for the miraculous. Give me five. Before we go any further, turn to your neighbor and say, give me five, and give them a crisp five. Just a nice crisp five. 
cultivating an environment for the miraculous, it causes us to ask the question, is it possible to do so? Is it possible to actually cultivate an environment that is conducive to the mighty and the marvelous and the miraculous? Or is the mighty and the marvelous and the miraculous work of God outside of our influence? Is it just in the place or the space of God's sovereign will that God will do things as he pleases and we have no role or part to play? Can we actually cultivate an environment for the miraculous? Does the environment make any difference? Well, in my experience, I would say yes. I've seen different environments cultivated actually create a conducive space for God to move mighty and marvelously. I see it all the time. As someone who travels around and preaches, I I, I can tell you right away, I can step into an environment and right away, whether it's a service or whether it's a gathering or whether it's a camp, whether it's a conference, right away, you can step into some environments and know right away something good is gonna happen. There is a receptivity in that environment. There is a humility in that environment. There's a hunger in that environment. There's a readiness in that environment. And you just know that that week, someone's getting saved, someone's getting set free, someone's getting healed, someone's walking away with some hope, someone who came in covered by a cloud of anxiety is walking out with a spirit of freedom. You know there are some environments where you step into it right away. That is a cultivated environment for the miraculous. But transversely, there are also environments that you'll step into and right away you'll notice a resistance in the air, a spiritual coldness in the air. There's like tumbleweed blowing through the place. You just know there's going to be a tough week that week or a tough service that service because of the cultivated environment. Instead of hunger, there's a resistance. Instead of humility, there's a pride. And and even though we're going to sing the same songs and preach the same sermon, and we all basically subscribe to the same theological presuppositions, the reality is change is just going to be a theory that's talked about. It's not going to become people's reality. The power of God is something we're going to sing about, but it won't become the soundtrack of people's lives. I've seen with my own eyes how the environment actually makes a massive difference in whether or not we see the mighty and the marvelous or the miraculous or just another mundane moment. I think Jesus teaches that the environment plays a role. I think Jesus teaches that we, created in God's image, have been invited since the beginning of time to partner with the God of creation to bring about his glory, his power, and his wonder in the earth. This is what he teaches in the book of Mark chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me to the book of Mark chapter 4. Everyone say Mark. Mark. Say Mark like an Australian. Mark. Mark. Say Mark like an American. Mark. Mark. Say Mark like a Chinaman. Mark. Awesome. I taught you languages. Mark chapter 4. For those who have been around church for a while, you might recognize this sermon that Jesus preached. It's all about just a different kind of environment that you can cultivate. If you're relatively new to church, we don't care how you got here. We're just super pumped that you are here. This is Jesus preaching this day about how we get to cultivate the kind of environment that is marked by fruitfulness, that's marked by signs, that's marked by wonders, that's marked by things that only God can do. In Mark chapter 4, verse 3, it says here, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some of that seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. 
Other seed fell amongst the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, you know what? All of our lives, all of our hearts, all of our households, hey, even our local church can be a particular kind of soil or environment. There are some kinds of environments that are hard and resistant. They're rough and they're rocky. And the seed can drop onto it. And even though the seed is mighty and miraculous in potential, because there is resistance, the birds of the air come and pick it away before anything actually happens. He says we can also be the kind of environment that is receptive, but only receptive to a point. We can have some soil, but it can be only really shallow. And it never develops a root system. So when the sun comes up, or in other words, the heat of life gets turned up, that little sapling fizzes as quick as it flared up. The story of a missed opportunity. He says we can also be the kind of environment, the kind of soil, the kind of ground, the kind of land that, that has soil. And it is kind of deep. But the problem is, in that environment, there is also thorns and thistles and bushes. There are other things vying for the attention of the sun and the nutrients from the earth. And in that environment, the seed will begin to grow. But what happens over an extended period of time, that little seed is choked out by all the other things in that environment. This symbolizes the kind of environment that is crowded, that is focused on so many different things and not wholly or solely on the kingdom of God. It might grow up, but it will not be fruitful. Another story of a missed opportunity. But then Jesus says, there's another kind of environment that we get to cultivate. It isn't hard. No, it's receptive. It is not shallow. It allows the work of God and the word of God to go deep. It isn't crowded or distracted. No, it is wholly and solely focused on the kingdom of God. And when you cultivate that kind of environment, miracles start to happen. Come on, life starts to bloom. And just as you think that nothing more could possibly happen, it begins to multiply 30, 60, 100-fold. Jesus' message was remarkably clear. Take note of the environment that you are cultivating because the seed wasn't the variable. Come on, the word wasn't the variable. Come on, the sower wasn't the variable. The only variable in this sermon is the environment that was cultivated. It forces us to ask the question, what kind of environment are we cultivating? A place for the miraculous or a place for the mundane? A place for the breathtaking, the spine-tingling, the mind-blowing, or a place of the ho-hum, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, shrunk in the wash. Come on, what kind of environment are you cultivating? What's fascinating is that Mark chapter 4 is followed by Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6. It's not fascinating. In fact, it's just basic math. But what you'll see in Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6 is actually the outplaying of these principles that are taught in Mark chapter 4. Because Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6 
actually symbolized and signify two very different kinds of environments. One that was receptive, one that was resistant. One that was conducive to the work of God, the other one that quelled the work of God. And it's fascinating because when you study, you have a look at Mark chapter six, you'll see an environment that was so resistant to the work and the will and the wonder of God. In your own time this week, I encourage you to read Mark chapter five and Mark chapter six. Go do it in your own time, but for the sake of time today and my desire for a free lunch, I'm just going to tell you basically the story of Mark chapter five and Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six symbolizes a hard and resistant environment. The kind of environment that we can all become in our lives if we aren't careful. The Bible says at the beginning of Mark chapter six that Jesus this day decides to go to his hometown called Nazareth to lay low. The context is Jesus and the boys have been cruising around the Sea of Galilee, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, raising the dead, having a grand old time, but Jesus wanted to lay low and get a little bit of rest. So the Bible says he and the boys went back to Nazareth and hung around till the Sabbath, which is the Saturday, to go along to the synagogue as was their custom. And so Saturday comes around and Jesus is there at the local church and an opportunity for him to preach arises. So he steps onto the stage, clears his celestial throat and begins to boom loudly and clearly the truth in the heart of God. And right away, the Bible says that in Mark chapter six, people are blown away by his teaching. What insight, what power, what authority, what what an ability to unpackage the word of God. Mm, I'm I'm, I'm delighting in this spiritual food that this guy is dishing up. People initially were blown away by Jesus's ministry. But then something started happening. A whisper became a murmur. A murmur would become a roar. And someone would declare, I've seen this guy somewhere before. That's right, I know who he is. Yo, Billy, I worked it out. You know who he is? That's Jesus. Remember Jesus from Nazareth High, class of 18? That's just Jesus. He ain't anything special. He's just one of us. He's a local hometown kid. Aren't his brothers and sisters amongst us right now? Isn't his mother Mary chilling in the corner? That's right. This guy, Jesus, left school in his junior year, did an apprenticeship with his dad. What was his dad's name again? Joe the Carpenter. This guy built the back porch at my house. He ain't anything special. He's no radical rabbi. He's no famous international speaker. He's just Jesus. And the spirit of hunger dissipated as a spirit of pride began to rise. A spirit of expectation disappeared as a spirit of familiarity gripped that environment. And then the weirdest verse in all of the Bible is recorded. Do you know there are weird verses in the Bible? If you read through the Song of Songs, you're gonna read some verses about male and female intimacy, make your face blush. If you read through the book of Kings, you're going to find some references to donkey parts that will make your face blush as well. But there are no verses as strange as the verse found in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, which records, Jesus is there, literally in a church service, preaching his heart out. But because of the shift in the environment, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. Jesus couldn't. Woo! Do you know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron are basically two words next to each other that don't look right. You know what I'm saying? Like government service or um, like Microsoft works. You know what I'm saying? Like 
There is no stranger oxymoron in the history of humanity than those two words, Jesus couldn't. This is Jesus, yo, this is Jesus. The firstborn over all creations, Colossians chapter one tells us. Through whom everything was made, for whom everything was created, in whom everything is held together. He's literally got the whole world in his hands, but his hands were tied. Why? Did he lose an iota of power for an instant? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus didn't change. What was the variable? The environment. They were hard-hearted. They were familiar. They were proud and they were arrogant. And then Jesus would declare a really well-known verse that many people have referenced throughout the ages. Jesus would say to his disciples, I suspect that this would happen because a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Or in other words, Jesus was saying, if you ever get to a point in your spiritual journey where you get so familiar with Jesus that you think that you have seen it all before, my friend, you will never get to see anything new again. And he was amazed at their unbelief, which was so different than Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 signifies and symbolizes an environment where life change happened, where the mighty unfolded, where the miraculous was commonplace. Mark chapter 5, just one chapter previous, just a couple of miles up the road, just the week before, symbolizes an environment that was cultivated for the miraculous. Mark chapter 5 begins with Jesus rolling into a region called the Gadarenes, now, the Gadarenes was a wild place. You know, the whole kind of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is like the what happens in the Gadarenes stays in the Gadarenes. And the most wild of all the wild party boys in the Gadarenes was a dude named Legion. They called him Legion because he partied so hard, it looked like he had 6,000 demons inside of him. And the reason it looked like he had 6,000 demons inside of him is because he had 6,000 demons inside of him. And the Bible says that all of his friends try to help him, restrain him tie him hand and foot, try to stop him from hurting himself, but he kept breaking free from those chains only to damage himself even more. Do you know anyone like that? And so all of his friends and all of his families try to, uh, all of his family try to help, but then Jesus shows up to bring about life change that only he can bring. The Bible says that Jesus rolls into town and right away Legion runs up to Jesus and falls at his feet. Why? Because even the foulest demons of hell know exactly who Jesus is. And so they speak to Jesus, yo, son of God, we know who you are. So wherever you are, we won't be. So, so this dude creating your image, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna clear house and we're gonna pack up our things and we're gonna go. So, so those pigs over there chilling on the side of the hill, Send us into those pigs. And because Jesus didn't come all the way to this earth, die on a rugged cross, be buried in a lonely grave so that he can snatch the keys of life and death to give you life eternity. He didn't come all the way just for you to live a life wound up and bound up and ground up by your slavery or your bondage. No, he came to set you free and free indeed. He says, yo, demons, get out of this man. So the demons leap out of legion and into these pigs. These pigs go wild because now they're demon-possessed. And so these pigs run down to the lake and they drown because pigs can neither fly nor swim. Destroys the bacon industry in that region for like 10 years. 
All the local town folk, especially the bacon-loving men. Come on, we're the bacon-loving men in the house. Come on. Hey, don't trust the man who doesn't like bacon. You know what I'm saying? They get angry at Jesus and the boys, so the Bible says they start chasing him. So Jesus and the boys try to hot-foot it out of town. Legion, or now his new name is Freeman, is now running with Jesus going, hey, let me come with you. I want to join your crew. But Jesus says, you can't come with us today because you've got a story to tell. I'm commissioning you to turn around and tell your story back in the Gadarenes and the 10 surrounding Decapolis cities here. I want you to preach about what Jesus has done for you. Can you see that? The first commissioned evangelist in the church of Jesus was an ex-crazy party boy named Legion. The story continues. Jesus and the boys jump into a boat and they sail to the other side. It was a short little journey and they arrived at a region called Capernaum. Jesus and the boys stepped off the boat onto the seashore and the Bible says there was already a multitude on the seashore waiting for them. There was a throng of humanity, dozens deep. They didn't roll in late, kind of. No, no, they were ready for Jesus as soon as he stepped off the boat. Through the crowd came a man named Jairus. They made space for Jairus because the Bible says in Mark chapter 5 that he was a synagogue ruler. He ruled in the synagogue. That's why they called him a synagogue ruler. And this Jairus would fall at Jesus' feet. Have mercy on me. This was a strange picture because up to this point, the Sanhedrin, this synagogue ruler, he was a part of a group who were already plotting Jesus' downfall, if not death. What also made this weird was that this synagogue ruler was used to having people falling at his feet. Why was he bowing before this radical named Jesus? Well, the reason he was bowing was because the Bible says that he had a little girl who was sick. She was on the verge of death. He had prayed every prayer and offered every offering, but still nothing would break in his daughter's life. So he thought to himself, hey, if I can get to this Jesus guy and get him to come to my house and lay hands on my little girl, I just know that she'd be made well. So Jairus would request from Jesus, hey, Jesus, you don't owe me anything. In fact, you can turn me away right now. But I just know that if you came to my house and you laid hands on my little girl, what is right now impossible would become a testimony of your power. Jesus has a chance to embarrass this religious leader. Jesus has a chance to exact revenge, but he doesn't. He simply smiles at Jairus and says, yes, I will come with you today. Why? Because Jesus doesn't love us just because we're lovely. Jesus loves us because that's who he is. God is love. If you could cut him, he would bleed it all over you. He can't help himself. So he loves the rebel and the religious the same. Come on, the lawless and the legalist the same. He can't help but respond to somebody who humbly asks for his help. So Jesus says, yo, we'll go to your house. Let's roll. So they start going to the other side of town. In the meantime, you'll see another character introduced into the story of Mark chapter 5. We know her as the woman with the issue of blood. The Bible said that she'd been bleeding for 14 years, spent all the money that she had, and instead of getting better, she just grew worse. Having the issue of blood for a woman in the first century was a particularly horrible infirmity because that meant she was ceremonially unclean. She could not come out into public. 
She could have no interaction with any other woman. So she had no friends. She could not have an interaction with a man. She had no love in her life. She was stuck there in the house. She was the picture of brokenness and disconnection. But the Bible says she thought to herself, if I can just find Jesus and touch his cloak, I just know that I will be made well. So this brave woman surmised, I'm living a death right now. What more can man do to me? If this Jesus guy is my last shot, I'm going after my last shot. So she opens up the door, steps into the daylight. She doesn't get to see the daylight very often. And she goes to find Jesus. She finally finds the party all moving towards Jairus' house, but there's a problem. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. She wouldn't be able to take another step forward without bumping into somebody. Remember, if she bumped into somebody, she would make them ceremonially unclean as well, and that could bring about for her a harsh penalty indeed, but she must have thought to herself, yo, I've come this far for my miracle, and it's just within reach. I refuse to allow anyone to hold me back from what Jesus has for me. So she starts pushing through the crowd. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. She pushes through the crowd, gets up to the front, reaches out with a lunge and touches Jesus' cloak as he walks by. And the Bible says immediately she feels healing fill her body. Just one touch from Jesus, healing filled her body. Come on, just one touch from Jesus, your answer can break through the darkness. Come on, just one touch from Jesus, this impossible situation becomes a testimony of God's grace and mercy. Just one touch from Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and says, yo, somebody touch me. The disciples said, what do you mean, Jesus, somebody touched you? There are a lot of people around. What do you mean somebody touched you? And Jesus said, no, somebody touched me because I can feel power depart from me. I love that little detail because this communicates to us this glorious reality that every single time God moves on your behalf, Every time he whispers an encouragement, every time he brings a breakthrough, every time he provides a provision, every time he works miraculously in your life, that isn't just a faraway God performing a random act of kindness. No, that's a personal, loving, acquainted God personally, lovingly acquainting himself with your situation. When you feel God, guess what? God felt it too. And this woman, I kind of, all right, well, it was me, it was me. I confess, had this issue for like 14 years. I know I can be in a lot of trouble, but here I am at your feet. I just knew that if I touched you when you were walking by, I'd be made well. And Jesus smiles at his sweetheart. Your faith made you well. Whenever you find God's more than enough collide with humanity's need, you're gonna see the potential for a miracle. Into the story breaks another character. Uh, we know him as Jairus' servant. Literally, mid-conversation, Jairus' servant steps in and says, hey, Jairus, I got some really bad news. Your little girl just died. I could imagine Jairus with eyes full of tears and a heart full of pain turning towards Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, um, thanks for trying, but we kind of got caught up with this woman and now it's too late. But little did Jairus know, like little do some of us know, that in Jesus, come on, it is never too late. Because he's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. He doesn't see time like we see time. That's the reason he says, hey, don't fear, just believe. Let's keep on rolling over to your house. So now the party 
rolls over to Jairus' house. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5 that out the front of Jairus' house was a commotion. Don't you love the Bible? It's all in there. You should read it more. There's a large commotion out the front of the house. People were wailing. People were crying. I picture this large group of people crying to be women because women are caring, connected creatures. They feel for one another. When one woman is feeling emotional, they're all feeling emotional. When I'm feeling tired and frumpy, you know, I'm feeling tired and frumpy too. When one woman wants to go to the bathroom, they all want to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Guys aren't like that, you know what I'm saying? When one guy goes to another guy, hey, bro, I want to go to the bathroom. Well, good luck. What do you want me to do? Like, kind of, so I picture them to be a group of women out the front crying. But the Bible says that Jesus grabs Jairus, his wife, a couple of servants, and a couple of his boys, and they push through the crowd. I love that physical image of Jesus being so gracious and so good that he won't even allow our physical pain and sorrow to hold us back from experiencing his personal presence. Come on, even in our darkest moment, he walks through the crowd and steps into a dim lit room. In the corner of that dim lit room was a seemingly dead little girl. Problem. It was strictly against Old Testament law to have any interaction with a dead body. But then again, technically, it was against Old Testament law to have any interaction with a demoniac in pig country. It was definitely against Old Testament law to have an interaction with a woman with the issue of blood. So Jesus must have just concluded, yo, I've been breaking laws all day long. Why stop now? And so he goes over and stands over this dead little girl. And in Aramaic says, Talitha Kaum, literally in Aramaic meaning, little girl, get up. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 5, immediately, boom, she springs back to life. Just one word from Jesus and dead things rise again. Come on, just one word from Jesus, a dead marriage can be restored again. Come on, just one word from Jesus. Come on, a dead dream can be revived again. Come on, just one word from Jesus, dead things rise. And like a classic teenager, the first thing she says is, I'm hungry. <laughs> so Jesus says, quick, get this little girl something to eat. So the disciples run into the kitchen. Yo, Jesus, what, what should we get? Well, whatever's there. There's some like leftover falafel here. Get that leftover falafel. Okay, cool. And Mark chapter 5 comes to an end with this beautiful picture. A group of disciples who have had their breaths collectively taken away. Scratching their collective heads, going, what a day it has been. This morning we woke up, had some breakfast, and we didn't think that before lunchtime, crazy legion party boy is now lucid free man, walking around, sharing his story, seeing other people coming into relationship with God. And just after lunch, we saw this woman with the issue of blood, who was the picture of dis disconnection and brokenness, and now she's healed, and she's been set free, and now she is free to be loved and to love others. And I swear that little girl was dead a few minutes ago, but now she's there chewing on a falafel. And they were all amazed. I came all the way to Charlotte to ask Freedom House one simple question. What kind of story do you wanna be? Come on, in your own life, in your own marriage, for your own family. Come on here in our church. 
in every single gathering, in every single life group space, in our youth ministry, in our children's ministry, in our women's and our men's ministries. Come on, what kind of environment do you really want to cultivate? Because you're allowed to be just another religious environment where Jesus literally comes to preach, but no one gets saved. You can be like Mark chapter 6, or you can be like Mark chapter 5 where the wild party boys and girls come back into the house of God, where those who are marked by disconnection and brokenness find themselves healed, whole, and set free in the kingdom. Come on. And people who were dead literally coming back to life. We get to choose whether our stories are like Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 6. I've got a feeling in my heart there's someone here at our 10.30 gathering who was saying, you know what? Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 6, give me five. Give me five. My time is done. My free meal is disintegrating before my very eyes. But I need to steal just a few more seconds just to challenge you, mm, to dare you, no, to double dog dare you. Would you be brave enough and bold enough to acknowledge that we all become Nazareths really quickly? That that spirit of familiarity is really easy to embrace, especially if we've been around the things of God for long enough. Come on, let's break that off. Come on, that spirit of pride and that spirit of arrogance that says, you know what, I can do this by myself. Or that spirit of unbelief that says, hey, I've seen it all before. What would happen if we broke that off and in its place furnished our freedom house with the things you saw in Mark chapter five? Come on, hunger, humility, falling at Jesus' feet. Come on, unwavering faith and belief that just one word and just one touch can change the world. What would happen if we would make a decision every single week we came together for church? In the days ahead, I think we're moving to some more aligned services, 5 p.m. on a Saturday 9.30 on a Sunday morning, 11.15 on a Sunday morning, when we came together on a Sunday, 6.30 for vertical, when we came together, we made a decision as we were walking through the parking lot. You know what? I'm dropping familiarity. Come on, I'm dropping unbelief. Come on, I'm dropping pride. And I'm clothing myself and my family with expectation, faith, humility, and hunger for the presence of God. How cool would it be during our 18 seconds of greeting? that we gave one another five, but in that little crisp smack was a reminder. Today, my friends, we are going to see an environment marked by the miraculous. Come on, give me five. Come on, someone just praise Jesus for a moment here. We're going to have our service leaders wrap up our time together. Like, seriously, it is unfair how aesthetically pleasing all of your pastors and leaders are. <laughs> like, just, like, are you real Christians or did we, like, hire you from, like, a website somewhere? Like, kind of, it just freaks me out. Like, last night I'm hanging out with Pastor Troy eating sushi, but I was just, like, kind of staring at, like, the veins in his neck and his traps, and I'm, like, going... You're like a beautiful human being, like kind of. <laughs> Pastor Penny's boots make me hate myself. She's like kind of just your style and your, I'm telling you, stop it. All right, so in my last few moments with you, um, 
I'm not going to pass this microphone off until I give someone an opportunity this morning to make King Jesus number one in their life. That's all Christianity is. Christianity isn't about a religious order. It's not about jumping through religious hoops. It's not about clearing a legalistic bar. It's about recognizing that God loved you so much that he came to find you just where you are. And if you would open up your heart to the king of this universe and make him number one, and it's not because he's like a jealous or insecure God. It's just that because he's God, he deserves to be number one. You would see the mighty and the marvelous and the miraculous come and break out in your life. So with every eye closed and no one looking around, if you're here this morning, you're saying right now, I know that Jesus isn't number one in my life, but I want to make him number one. When I count to three, lift your hand where you are. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer that's going to change everything. Come on, if you're here this morning, you're going, I want to see this kind of fruitful, miraculous life in my journey. I want to make God number one. When I count to three, lift your hand. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Just lift your hand where you are. See hands just everywhere. Hands everywhere. Up on the hands everywhere. Keep your hands raised. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. By you lifting your hand, that is an act of humility. Let's just pray this together out loud, especially if you lifted your hand. But we're going to do this all together here, Freedom House. Let's do it. Dear Jesus, I make you number one in my life. I want to thank you for your love and mercy. I receive your life. Help me now by your spirit. Live now for your glory. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe. And hey, if you want to find out more about our church or how you can be a part, go to freedomhouse.cc.